0: part three of the trilogy. So um, most of you, I think, have actually managed to get through all uh, three of these, and so it's really grateful that you've managed to to do that. Um, So if you remember, on the first uh, one, the main thing that we were looking at was the return of Jesus. And what we said was the Lord Jesus Christ himself isn't coming back secretly and surreptitiously. He is coming back in the clouds of heaven. He will appear in the clouds of heaven. We will see him coming. And do you notice we sang about that just in that hymn that we just uh, sang together? Uh, Saints, lift your heads, the day is near when your Redeemer shall appear to take the kingdom and the throne and make his ransom bride his own. The point is, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to appear In the clouds of heaven. And we will see him. And if you think about it, that's why we're told to look up. And sometimes, you know, in our lives, it's very easy to look down. Especially when we see all of the horrors of things that are going on in the world. You know, this country has lurched from crisis to crisis, hasn't it, just over the last few weeks. There's a, a sense of Uh, I don't know how the Queen put it when she gave her speech the other day, uh, but, you know, there's a sense of crisis in this country, uh, and, and people can sort of feel that. Now, the point is, though, that we need to be looking up and not getting depressed with these things. Yes, I think we do vex our souls when we look at what is going on, just exactly like Lot did. Do we like looking at the immorality? Do we like looking at the violence? No. But should it encourage us that Jesus is imminently going to return, yes it should. So we shouldn't switch everything off and go into sort of some sort of cocoon and hope that it all goes away. We should stay alert, we should stay watchful, we should keep looking at those things that God and the Lord Jesus Christ told us to look for. And the biggest one of the lot is look up because you're going to see him coming. And isn't that great? That we lift our spirits. And do you know something? The reason I started with that one, it's so important to get the vision right. If our vision isn't right, if our vision is slightly off beam, lots of things don't f- fall into place. It's absolutely crucial that we do understand that Jesus is going to appear in the clouds of heaven. That we will have a time, a period of time, before we are actually gathered by the angels, caught up uh, and taken to uh, Jerusalem. There will be that time gap. So it was really important for me to get this right because this is the vision. This is what we need to have in our hearts and minds. The second thing then is, though, was putting together the jigsaw puzzle of the events as they lead up to that point. And this is what we did last week, yeah? And uh, what we did was to have a look at the three stages of God's judgment on this earth. And so we said, look, there's a a stage one, there's a stage two, there's a stage three. And each of them are different conflicts that are going to occur. um, all with Israel at the centre. Or really with Jerusalem at the centre of each one of those conflicts. The first one... uh, It was all to do with uh, Israel's immediate and surrounding um, neighbors. And it's all mentioned in Psalm 83 there. There's the 10 tribes that actually uh, launch a war. It's all there in Zechariah 12. We looked at that last time. That's stage one. Israel wins that and removes the pricking briars. Remember we said about the pricking briars? Israel will remove those and overcome, but be left weakened. At the same time, in Isaiah 17 it says, Syria is completely obliterated, Damascus ceases to be a city. That then leaves a great vacuum in the Middle East into which pour uh, the Zechariah 14 nations, not peoples, from Zechariah 12 nations come pouring in. And those nine nations mentioned in Ezekiel 38 do not encompass any of the territory whatsoever of these ten tribes here. So we're going to see uh, all of those nations come in against uh, Jerusalem, but the main aim of that one is riches, it's spoil. That's what Mr. Putin uh, likes to see and wants. And the third stage, which has nothing really to do with the other two, it's all to do with Israel's religion And this is after Christ has established himself in Jerusalem. And this is to do with the Ten Kings. This is Rome, the false religion of Rome, the Babylonian religion, uh, that's riding the uh, resurrected Holy Roman Empire beast. And that actually happens after Christ has returned. We know it because Revelation 17 says that... The woman and the beast and the ten kings make war against uh, the lamb and those that are with him who are called and chosen and faithful. It's got to be us. We've got to be there. Nothing to do with that part too. So what we're going to do tonight is, I said to you, I promised you in fact, I think, right at the beginning of all of these talks, that on this one I would give you as much proof as I can that we are living in the very last days And that the return of Jesus is imminent. And remember I said the word imminent in my mind means days, weeks, months or maybe a few years. It does not mean decades or centuries or millennia. So we're right on the cusp of it. So there's four things that we're going to, if we've got time, might have to cut some of this short. Or you might have all just fallen asleep in the heat. Okay, one or the other. But these are the four things that I wanted to look at. You see, if this sequence is correct, then stage one must come first, yeah? And therefore, what evidence is there right now that stage one could happen? So that's what we're going to look at to start with. Then we're going to look at this phrase, the time of the end, because it seems to me that that's a good phrase to look at if we're trying to pinpoint, are we at the time of the end, don't you? So we'll look at that. Uh, we also look at this phrase, the end of the world. That also crops up um, in the Bible. We'll look at that. What does it say in relation to that? And if we've got chance, I'll do this final countdown uh, part to it as, as well. So let's start off looking at this stage one. Do you remember, we—I've just recapped it really for you. Uh, but stage one is Israel's immediate and surrounding uh, relatives, as I've called them there, because most of them are related to Israel, because they're uh, Arab in descent. Some of them aren't related to Israel. They're not all um, related to uh, Israel. Some of them uh, are from Philistia. These are the Palestinians. Okay? Um, but let's just put this Psalm 83 up, and so you can see, remind yourselves as to what what's being said here. So Psalm 83, this is stage one. This is coming before Jesus appears in the clouds of heaven Um, and it says look in verse 2 look your enemies talking about Israel uh, your enemies Israel make a tumult they that hate thee have lifted up the head they have taken crafty counsel against you Um, I'm paraphrasing some of this verse 4 look this is what they say these people come let us cut them off from being a nation that the name of Israel may be no more in remembrance now remember that So this is uh, these people. Well, who are the people? Well, they're listed out here. And it's really interesting because they're all tribes. All of them are tribes. So you've got the tabernacles of Edom and the Ishmaelites and Moab and the Hagarines and Gebel and Ammon and Amalek and the Philistines with the inhabitants of Tyre. They're all tribes or peoples within nations. And the interesting one is in verse 8, it says that Asher is joined with them. And the reason that it says Asher, by the way, is joined with them, if you remember I said Asher, is the only one that's a nation. All the others are tribes or peoples within nations. Asher is the only one that is a nation. And when you look on a map to see where all those people are, they all immediately surround little Israel. And Asher, another name for Assyria, is up here where Syria now is. And when uh, Asaph actually wrote this, or um, well, the son of Asaph wrote this psalm in 850 BC, uh, Assyria or Asher came right down and covered Damascus and Syria, and that is why I'm pretty confident Asher equals Syria in the context of uh, Psalm 83. And we've got the Philistines over here, Philistia, that's modern day Palestinians. Uh, On the Gaza Strip there. We've got peoples dotted around Israel here. uh, In in the current kingdom of Jordan. Where many millions of Palestinians are currently holed up in in tents. uh, Because they've been kept as refugees. And if you remember I said to you. That the, the stronghold of Hezbollah. Is in the city of Tyre. And what did it say in Psalm 83? Be the inhabitants of Tyre that come against uh, Israel, that say, let's destroy them. And Hezbollah's stronghold is in Tyre in Lebanon. So God knew, well, 850 BC, 2,850 years ago, that it would be the inhabitants of Tyre specifically that are going to cause Israel this massive problem. And lo and behold, there's Hezbollah, terrorist organisation, whose sole aim is to try and wipe Israel off the map. And the last thing, just to recap, um, just to remind you, is this. In Isaiah 17, which is all talking about the same set of stage one events, you've got the complete and utter destruction of Damascus. If you go on Wikipedia and type in Damascus, it says, Damascus is the oldest continually inhabited city on planet Earth. That is the claim of Damascus. And in fact, God says Damascus is going to cease to exist. It never has ceased to exist. It's the oldest continually inhabited city in the world, according to Wikipedia. It is going to cease to exist. And at the same time it ceases to exist, northern Israel is going to come under attack. We know that because it says in the same chapter in Isaiah 17 that the 45 towns of northern Israel would be destroyed The royal power from Damascus will end. In that day, Israel's glory will grow dim, and so on. So Israel's going to get involved in this Syrian conflict. I'm just going to play a little bit of video uh, here. This is a, a, a Russian drone that recently flew over some of the suburbs of Damascus. And this is what it currently looks like. I mean, it sort of looks like it already is destroyed, doesn't it? But this is like like Yardley Wood. You know, this is not the whole of Birmingham gone. This is not the whole of Damascus gone. This is the suburbs that have gone. But God says, no. When God says Damascus will cease to be a city, believe me, when when he says that, that's what he means. And this is just the start of the story or part of the story. But the story of Syria is not over yet. We know for certain it isn't because Israel has not yet got involved. Now, amazingly, if you were living in America not that long ago, and you had put on your uh, evening news, this is what you would have watched.
1: And how about this to think about today? The crisis in Syria may be more than just a current foreign policy problem. With some seeing signs of biblical prophecies of the apocalypse and the events that are unfolding overseas, passages in the Old Testament even make reference to Damascus falling into ruin, sparking worldwide conflict that some say leads to the coming of the Messiah. Joel Rosenberg is a former aide to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, and he is a Middle East analyst and has written several books uh, on this issue. Joel, welcome. Good to have you with us today. Good to be with you, Martha. You know, I think it's very interesting uh, to look at this from that historic biblical perspective because, in many ways, when obviously. Um YOU KNOW, WHAT YOU HAVE HERE IS is A CLASH OF CIVILIZATIONS IN A LARGER SENSE AND OF CHRISTIANITY uh, AND OF RADICAL ISLAM uh, AND THIS uh, DESIRE FOR A CALIPHATE ON THE PART OF RADICAL ISLAMISTS IN THAT PART OF THE WORLD. SO EXPLAIN TO US, TAKE US THROUGH um, ISAIAH AND WHAT, you, what YOUR THINKING right. IS on, ON WHAT THE BIBLE SAYS ABOUT THIS. WELL, MARTHA, IT IS FASCINATING. WE DON'T KNOW FOR CERTAIN THAT THE CURRENT EVENTS ARE DEFINITELY GOING TO PLAY OUT TO BE THE FULFILLMENT OF BIBLE prophecy, BUT THE IMPLOSION OF SYRIA IS DEFINITELY has people interested. Isaiah 17 and its parallel uh, passage in Jeremiah 49 both describe the absolute destruction, uh, the catastrophic destruction of Damascus at some point in the eschatological future, the end times. Uh, Isaiah 17 verse 1 says Damascus will be removed from being a city. Uh, One translation says it will cease to be a city. Now, Damascus has been attacked, it's been conquered throughout history, but it's never been removed as a city. It's one of the oldest continuously inhabited cities
0: uh, on the face of the earth, first mentioned in the Bible in Genesis, and now we're still talking about it today.
1: Yeah, you know, and it it is very... Wow,
0: this is incredible. Uh, America are far more open to talking about the Bible than ever we are in this country, so we don't get this sort of debate on, on our news. But I was amazed to see that. But of course, you know, they're looking at the events that are happening right now in Syria, and they're seeing, rightly so, I believe, that these things are beginning to come to pass and are leading towards stage one completion. Um, Now, what I've also done, I've gone back over the last just few months to give you some more evidence that stage one could happen at any point in time. So remember stage one of the surrounding nations coming against Israel Predominantly, we're talking about a war between Israel and Syria, that uh, Israel wins and Syria dramatically loses. And we also uh, see the Palestinians and Hezbollah especially coming in and and, and fighting against them, according to Psalm 83. And that's my viewpoint when I'm looking at headlines. That's what strikes something in my mind. Now, this was from the 30th of November 2016. Uh, those of you who get the Weekly World Watch would have read this as the headline in the Weekly World Watch back then. Israeli airstrikes hit Damascus outskirts, Syrian reports say. Uh, Israeli jets fired two missiles from Lebanese airspace towards the outskirts of the Syrian capital, Damascus, early on Wednesday, the official Syrian news agency said in a strike of an unknown target that caused loud explosions. So here is Israel... Uh, firing missiles in at Damascus. We know there's a conflict coming between these two nations. Uh, Syrian army warns Israel it will respond after military airport bombed near Damascus. This was on the 13th of January uh, this year. Um, Moving on. Now here's Hezbollah. This is the guys who've got the stronghold in Tyre, inhabitants of Tyre. Hezbollah missiles aimed at Israel's nuclear reactor. This was on the 9th of March this year. The Iranian-backed terror group Hezbollah currently has advanced missiles capable of hitting Israel's nuclear reactor, according to Hassan Nasrallah, the terror group's leader, who boasted in a recent interview that the terror group is prepared to strike the reactor and cause nuclear havoc across the Middle East. Uh, This was on the 17th of March, Syria fires missiles at Israeli jets following airstrikes. Um, Syria fired fired missiles at Israeli warplanes early Friday after a series of Israeli airstrikes inside Syria, a rare military exchange between the two hostile neighbours that was confirmed by both sides. You can see why I'd be interested in this uh, and why we all perhaps should be interested in this. Uh, this was on the 31st of march just a few weeks ago really israel conducts military drill to get ready now look at this for the next real war with hezbollah israel is conducting a large scale military drill at a base in the north of the country in what commanders say could all could be the last training before the war with hezbollah israel's saying this it could be the last training we do before war with Hezbollah. The reason that the tension is built between Hezbollah and Israel is because Hezbollah have poured in its uh, troops, its rebel fighters, into Syria, and now they've crept ever closer to Israel's border in the Golan, and now that, you know, something is going to give at some point, hence Israel doing these military drills. Wading into it, as well, is uh, President Trump, you know, He's got two buttons on his desk apparently. One says tweet, the other says nuke. You know, I mean, it's goodness only knows what, what, what this man could do. But he is, uh, on the 7th of April, uh, launched mili- military strikes against uh, the Syrian regime. Uh, on President Donald Trump's orders, US warships launched 59 Tomahawk cruise missiles at the airbase that was home to the warplanes that carried out the chemical weapons attacks, US officials said. This is back in April. And of course we know, even in the last 24 hours, it's all on the news again, isn't it? But we'll cover that in just a moment. Russia, Iran and Syria issue warning to US. That was on the 14th of uh, April. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, who hosted his Iranian and Syrian counterparts in Moscow denounced the US missile strikes on Syria as a flagrant violation of international law. uh, In addition, such actions would entail grave consequences, not only for regional, but global security, said Lavrov. So he's saying, actually, this isn't any more just about Syria. This could become a global problem. Um, this is on the 27th of April. Israeli strike hit suspected Hezbollah arms depot near Damascus airport. It set off a series of massive explosions, raising tensions further between the two neighbours. So it's all happening, but you've got, to be, you know, you've got to be zoomed in on this stuff. You know, if you just get the mail and read about you know, the X Factor or whatever rubbish is on TV, then actually you're going to miss it. But if you're watching and think, I'm going to look out for these things, lo and behold, it's all rumbling away and leading up to this. Uh, What's this one? This is June the 7th. Now, this is not that long ago, is it? This is this month. IDF, that's the Israeli Defence Force. IDF, Hezbollah is an imminent threat at the top of our priorities. An imminent threat is Hezbollah. The IDF is re-evaluating the top challenges it faces and the Shiite terror organisation is high on the list. They see it as imminent. It's imminent because the whole Syrian thing is on the the knife edge of of, of disaster. Uh, If you want it bang up to date, here's the 18th of June. Uh, This is in uh, Jewish News. Hezbollah supporters call for Israel's annihilation at a London rally. So two days ago, if you were in London, you'd have seen Hezbollah uh, supporters, and maybe members, I don't know, waving the Hezbollah flags and openly calling for Israel's annihilation. What did Psalm 83 say? The inhabitants of of Tyre, Hezbollah, that's their stronghold, would call for the annihilation of Israel and our very streets in this country as if waving to the world saying, hey, this is what we want to do. They're telling us what they want to do. We should be looking at this and understanding that we're on the brink of stage one happening. Now, when does it happen? I don't know. The Syrian war has rumbled on for nearly seven years. Half a million people have been killed. The refugees, the millions of refugees that have come into Europe have destabilised Europe. The terrorist attacks that are happening in this country, if you listen to it... Most of them have had Syrian background, either training or they've been there, and all the horrors of Syria are then pumped straight back into into Europe. Syria has become a global nightmare. And in fact, when it says in Isaiah 17 that Damascus will be a great burden, it it means something that the world, it, it means basically something that the world looks at and can do nothing about it. It's a burden that can't be moved or shifted or dealt with. That's, in the, that's the sense of what God is saying. It is a burden to the world. So hopefully that's a little bit of evidence, but you go away and look at it yourselves. This is, you know, it's not just a, you know, a few people that should be looking at this. We should all be looking and, uh, and investigating these things um, and, and watch them as they happen. Now, the other thing that I wanted to, uh, to look at is this phrase, the time of the end. Now, the reason I thought that's a good phrase to look at is because, well, you can't have two times of the end, really, can you? There's only one time of the end. And I'm saying to you, we're at the time of the end. And if I'm right that we are right on the brink of the time of the end, when we look at the verses that say about the time of the end, it should, just as we've done with Syria and Hezbollah, it should like start lining up, don't you think? Well, let's hope it does, because these are the next slides coming up. This is every single time in the Bible that the phrase, the time of the end, is mentioned. Every, every last one of them. doesn't matter whether you want to look at the Greek or the Hebrew, whatever you want to do. These are the only times that phrase comes up. In Daniel chapter 8, verse 17... Uh, angel Gabriel says, you must understand that the events that you've seen in your vision, whatever that was, relate to the time of the end. In Daniel chapter 11, verse 35, that we we read as an introduction, uh, it says, some of the wise will fall victim to persecution. In this way, they'll be refined and cleansed and made pure until the time of the end, for the appointed time is still to come. In Daniel 11, verse 40, we read, then at the time of the end, the king of the south will attack the king of the north, and the king of the north will storm out with chariots and charioteers and a vast navy. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, it says, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book, even unto the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge uh, shall be increased. And in Daniel chapter 12, verse 9, uh, he said, this is Gabriel talking, go thy way, Daniel, For the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. So one, two, three, four. There's five times that the phrase the time of the end is used. And what I'm going to do now for the next ten minutes is show you the amazing stuff. Absolutely toe curling, spine tingling stuff that is connected in with these phrases because it's happening right in front of our very eyes in, in amazing detail. And I'm not trying to over-egg this. I, I'm, I'm coming at it from exactly how I feel about, uh, about these phrases, the time of the end. The first one I thought we'd just look at is this one in Daniel 12, verse 4. So here's Daniel. Um, and we read, didn't we, that at the time of the end, many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. So Daniel had been given some sort of vision, we're told, And and the vision that he had caused him to write down, many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. Now, I don't know exactly what Daniel saw. Maybe he did have some vision of the world in which we live right now. But I can't think of a better way of an ancient prophet who had some vision, however it was, of the future In 11 words, because that's all it is, to describe the world in which he could see in this vision. He wouldn't be able to say, well, the people were using mobile phones, and people were flying in aeroplanes, and there was uh, people flying at, you know, 80 miles an hour past me at speeds I can't even begin to dream of. No. The vision that he saw caused him to write, Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased." Isn't that amazing? Has there ever been? Look, until the last 60 or 70 years, everybody went round in horse and cart. For 6,900, no, for 5,900 years, people have gone around at about the speed of a horse. That's like 99% of history, people have gone around at the speed of a horse. Daniel says, no, 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 Many are going, the, the word literally means to rush backwards and forwards. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm driving to work at, uh, at the speed limit. Um, <laughs> I'm still doing 70 miles an hour. It's still an incredible speed that we're hurtling along at. And do you not think we live in the time when knowledge has increased? Well, have a little look at this. The first commercial text message was sent in December of 1992. Today the number of text messages sent and received every day exceeds the total population of the planet. The years it took to reach a market audience of 50 million, 38 years for radio, 13 years for TV, 4 years for the internet, 3 years for iPods. Two years for Facebook. The number of internet devices in 1984 was just a thousand. It was a million in 1992. It was a billion in 2008. There are 540,000 words in the English language, about five times as many as during Shakespeare's time. It is estimated that a week's worth of the New York Times contains more information than a person was likely to come across in a lifetime in the 18th century. It is estimated that 4 exabytes of unique information will be generated this year, that is more than the previous 5,000 years. The amount of new technical information is doubling every two years. For students starting a four-year technical degree, this means that half of what they learn in their first year of study will be outdated by their third year of study. And so it goes on. The information, the knowledge, has it not gone exponential? And that is the world that Daniel saw. Now we might say, well sure Andy, fine. But maybe Jesus' return is is another hundred years away and we'll run even faster. And cars will go even faster and our knowledge will be even greater. Well so it might. But surely we can see that actually we don't keep going much faster than we go And the knowledge, even though it's increasing, is going to reach a point when uh, the Lord Jesus Christ has to intervene. We end up blowing ourselves up with the technology that we create. So that was Daniel 12 verse 4. Are you coping in this heat, by the way? Just about. I'm going to have to waft myself here. I might have a glass of water. Right, change of tack. Change of tack because Daniel changes tack. We're going to have a look now at these two verses here. We're going to have a look at Daniel 11, verse 35 that we read. And we're going to have a look at Daniel 11, verse 40. Because both of those verses, very close to each other, talk about the time of the end. So if you've got your Bibles open, I think you might still be there in Daniel 11, which is great. I need to quickly, quickly set the scene about these verses... Because Daniel 11, verse 35, the astute amongst you will know that 34 verses came before that, yeah? It's, it's, that's just how it is. So, you might say, well, we're leaping straight in at verse 35 and onwards. What about the bit before? Very quickly, I can't do the whole chapter, but in Daniel 11, verses 21 to 34, this man is being spoken about. This man here specifically has been spoken about from Daniel 11, verse 21 to 34. Anybody know who this man is? No, it's not Ptolemy. Antiochus Epiphanes is the right answer. Antiochus Epiphanes was the ancient king of the north. His base was in Syria. He lived uh, around about 175 BC. And he died in 164 uh, BC, he he started reigning in 175 BC, died in 164 BC, and he was their head of the Seleucid Empire. So the Seleucids, don't don't have to really remember this name, but anyway, he was a very vile, contemptuous, nasty piece of work. And God has a lot to say, quite a few verses there in Daniel 11 about this man. (laughs) He persecuted the Jews like you wouldn't believe it. Uh, He massacred many, many thousands and thousands of Jews. Because he came down from Syria into uh, Israel. In fact, he went beyond Israel. He ended up in Egypt at one point. Uh, He forbade the, uh, the, uh, um, the worship of Judaism. He said, no, you can't practice Judaism at all. If I catch you doing it, you're dead. Uh, he built a, uh, an idol in God's temple that was there in Jerusalem, uh, and he, and he, he built an, an, uh, an idol to Zeus, and he sacrificed a pig there in, that, um, in God's temple. God doesn't like this man. He's persecuting his people, he's massacring them, he's forbidding them to worship, very unpleasant man. And he was, he was called the king of the north, and he's based in Syria, just north, as we know, of Israel. And that's enough detail for, for, for just for now. And, but then you come to verse 35, so the previous verse is all about this one man. Verse 35 of Daniel, which we read, it says, Some of the wise will fall victim to persecution. In this way they will be refined and cleansed and made pure, now look, until the time of the end. For the appointed time is still to come. So there's a gigantic gap in the prophecy. After Antiochus Epiphanes leaves the scene. there's now this huge gap up until the time of the end. Uh, Brother John Thomas in Elpis Israel actually writes these words. Uh, he says, there is a break in the prophecy. Well, there is a break in the prophecy. Because you go from Antiochus in roughly 200 BC, and here we are in 2017, at the time of the end. That's how big the gap is. By the way, don't be alarmed at that. There's many gaps in prophecies like that. Many, many gaps. And the reason that God's put a big gap in. Is because he says, here's this guy. Antiochus Epiphanes. This is, what he's, this is what he did. And at the very end of time. There's going to be another chap. Very similar to Antiochus Epiphanes. And I'm going to tell you what he's going to do. And where he lives and all the rest of it. And that king... Uh, This latter-day Antiochus Epiphanes, God tells us all about from verse 36 to verse 40. So straight on the scene now, this is, by the way, look, this is an individual human being. This is not a nation, because look at what it says. It says the king, an individual ruler on planet earth, will do as he pleases "'exalting himself and claiming to be greater than every god, "'even blaspheming the god of gods. "'He will succeed, but only until the time of wrath is completed, "'for what has been determined will surely take place. "'He will have no respect for the god of his ancestors "'or for the desire of women, or for any other god, "'for he will boast that he is greater than them all. (coughs) "'Instead of these, he will worship the god of armed forces, "'and a god his ancestors never knew will he worship with gold, silver, precious stones, and expensive gifts. He will work in the strongest fortress. He will honour those who submit to him, appointing them to positions of authority and dividing the land among them as their reward. Now look, then, at the time of the end, the king of the south, whoever that is, will, the, the AV says, push him. This version says, provoke him. Some versions say, attack him. Then the king of the north will storm out with chariots and a vast navy. This king being spoken about here is a latter-day Antiochus Epiphanes. And I believe that this latter-day Antiochus Epiphanes is Gog himself that is mentioned in Ezekiel 38. Because when you look at Ezekiel 38 and line it up with Daniel 11 verses 35 to the end, you will see that the two things line up perfectly and if you think about it, Gog, who we know is a Russian ruler, is the one who's going to come down into Israel, on into Egypt, cause a huge massacre of the Jews, exactly like ancient Antioch's Epiphanes. And I'm going to show you, as best as I can in a few minutes, that this man that lived 200 BC is actually related scripturally to this man Vladimir Putin. They even look the same. They even look the same. But I'm going to go through now quickly every single solitary phrase in Daniel 11 verses 36 to 39. And no other man on the planet, I promise you, can fit all of these phrases apart from this man. Now some people might say, well he might die tomorrow and it might not be him. And you know something, that's true. But I'm telling you this. That if, he, if that did happen, then somebody so identical to be Putin as to be him must be raised up again. Another person identical to this man. So let me just go back to this. This ruler, this latter day Antiochus Epiphanes, north of Israel, is going to do as he pleases, exalt himself, claiming to be greater than every god, blaspheming the god of gods. He will succeed, but only to the time of wrath is completed. Because what's been determined will surely take place. He doesn't respect the gods of his ancestors, or for the desire of women. But he will boast that he's greater than them all. Instead of this, he worships the armed forces. He also worships gold, silver, precious things, and expensive gifts. He works in something called the strongest fortress. He will honour those who submit to him, appointing them to positions of authority, and divides the land among them as their reward. And at the time of the end, the king of the south pushes at this individual man. The, the, the king of the south militarily provokes this individual man. And when this individual man has been provoked, he then sends out the whole... He then really becomes the king of the north. Because every time it talks about the king of the north or the king of the south, it's talking about a great nation. And the Russian nation storms out at that point. Now watch this. Does this man exalt himself, I ask you? Now you could say, well some do, but I never saw David Cameron doing something (laughs) like that. I certainly haven't seen Theresa May looking anything (laughs) like that. Uh, But look, there are many world leaders that have got their own calendar and they certainly don't have what's on the right there. And what that is, is Putin's own youth camp. They're called the Narshies, believe it or not. And uh, the Narshies worship Vladimir Putin. You notice their uniform, which is what it is, has got a picture of his face on on all of their jumpers. And there's thousands of young people that are put through training camps to understand Putin and his thinking, uh, he certainly does exalt himself. It's not only me that says that, this was on Panorama quite recently, last year.
2: There is no other world leader like Vladimir Putin. Action man. Man of the people.
0: Russia! Yeah.
2: And ruler of Russia,
1: Vladimir Putin, welcomes the crew of the
2: From Ukraine to Syria, Vladimir Putin's influence is being felt. He's faced countless accusations of corruption, but still has record
0: record approval raisings, That should say, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev. Those of you who are a little bit old remember this man. He ruled Russia. Mikhail Gorbachev says Vladimir Putin views himself as second only to God. You know, this man definitely has exalted himself. We were told that this man worships the God of armed forces. Nobody in Russia's history has thrown so much cash into uh, Russia's armed forces. And the West has been totally and utterly taken aback, shocked at how Russia has managed to conduct long-range warfare in Syria without a blink of an eye. They had no idea, believe it or not, that Russia had the capacity to do that, and that's because Putin has shunted so much of his oil and gas cash straight into uh, the armed forces. We are told that he worships gold, silver, and precious gifts, and in fact there was another panorama documentary just last year called Putin's Secret Riches, where it reckons the money laundering that Putin himself is responsible is just astronomical. And it probably makes him one of the richest, if not the richest man on planet Earth. So much cash has he uh, shoveled into his own domain and his own uh, bank accounts. It's worth watching that. It's just amazing uh, how much money uh, this man has actually uh, put away into his own coffers. You know and it says that he works in a fortress... Uh, It actually says in the AV that he works, uh, or he performs, it means he works in a stronghold. The word stronghold means a fortress. Amazingly, uh, the Kremlin means a fortress inside a city. So we're told to, to identify this man, he works in a fortress. I've checked it out, there is no other world leader at all in any position that works in anything called a fortress apart from Vladimir Putin who works in the Kremlin that means a fortress or a stronghold. If you notice at the very end of this little passage it says that this man, who must exist by the way at the time of the end, will honour those who submit to him, appointing them to positions of authority and dividing the land among them as their reward. Now just watch this. This man is going to honour those who submit to him, he appoints them to positions of authority, and he rewards them. This was on Panorama, another Panorama, last year, and just listen to this.
2: He's the world leader accused of personally approving murder on the streets of London. The conclusion that the Russian state was probably involved in the murder of Mr Litvinenko is deeply disturbing. But is the president implicated in an assassination also responsible for theft on an extraordinary scale? He has fleets of
1: things that almost no billionaire in the West would have.
2: Vladimir Putin has been accused of looting his own country. Today,
0: Putin
2: Putin behaves like a czar. Tonight, we investigate the truth about President Putin's riches. Why would it be
0: kept secret? Because it belongs personally to Putin, not to the state.
2: And for the first time, the Americans say what they really think about the Russian president. Is Vladimir Putin corrupt? In our view, yes. The men closest to Putin have been with him for years. They were with him here in St Petersburg and they've stayed with him ever since. And this is the group that he trusts and that he rewards. And this is the group that runs Russia. Putin's lawyer at the town hall became president and then prime minister of Russia. His former deputy also served as prime minister. The chief of staff at the town hall now runs Russia's anti-drugs agency. His former assistant now runs the biggest oil company in the world. And his former economist now runs the biggest gas company in the world. For those who've been in Putin's circle, the benefits have been immense. A cellist, who is godfather to Putin's daughter, has a valuable stake in a major Russian bank. A neighbour has an even bigger stake. Another neighbour ended up running the railways. A childhood friend has made a fortune from government contracts. And his brother has made even more. The Americans say this is how Putin's Russia works.
0: It's pretty amazing, isn't it? And it's not only the Americans that say this. God says it in Daniel chapter 11. And here's how I've rewritten Daniel chapter 11, verses 36 to 40, just putting in exactly what we now know. Uh, a national ruler, this king, similar to Antiochus Epiphanes, will arise at the time of the end. His name is Vladimir Putin. He will magnify himself and be puffed up. He will succeed in all that he does. Just look at what he's done in all his conflicts, won all of them. Uh, He succeeds until he is finally destroyed, however. He doesn't regard anything other than his own self-interest. The two things he does worship are the armed forces and material things. He works in the Kremlin, he honours those who submit to him and he appoints them to positions of authority and he divides the land among them as their reward. And at the time of the end, the king of the south, which we know is America and Britain, and uh, based in Saudi Arabia, they militarily provoke this man. And this causes Putin to send his northern army down into Syria and at this point he then becomes the king of the north as he controls the very heartland of Antiochus Epiphanes, and he swoops down like a whirlwind into Israel and beyond, into Egypt. That is how I see it. And if it isn't this man, as I say, it's somebody that's almost identical to him, because he's got to fulfil all of those things. And uh, this is a headline just today, uh, no, yesterday, Russia warned, is it, yeah, the night, what date is it today? It was yesterday. Russia warns America as risks rise in Syria. Uh, the stakes in Syria now include a US Russia war because what America did yesterday or the day before was to shoot down a Syrian jet. What then, that's the first time in seven years this has happened, and what Russia has now said is right, from here on in, we are treating all American uh, planes as, uh, as military targets and we will shoot uh, down American. War, war planes. That's how serious things have got in just the last 48 hours. So, Daniel's pretty amazing here. He's giving us so much information, and God in his mercy has given us all this information to identify when we are at the time of the end. He didn't have to tell us about an individual man. He didn't have to spend four verses telling us about this man, but he's given us a huge amount of information. But it isn't only there, because Daniel 8, verse 17, also talks about this man. Because Daniel 8 is all about, wait for it, Antiochus Epiphanes. Daniel 8 is all about Antiochus Epiphanes. is a, a little horn that grows, it says in Daniel 8. It's another story. But there's the phrase again, the time of the end. And here's a further description about the exact same man. Uh, A fierce king, a master of intrigue, will rise to power. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause a shocking amount of destruction and succeed in everything he does. He will destroy powerful leaders and devastate the holy people. He will be a master of deception and will exalt himself. He will destroy many without warning. It's a latter-day Antiochus Epiphanes here, just as it is in Daniel 11, verses 35 to 40. It's the same person. We're told he's got a fierce countenance. Yeah, tick in the box there. It says that he causes deceit to prosper. Well, what did the US Treasury say only a few months ago? Uh, Putin is corrupt. He is strong and successful in all that he does. And so, effectively, I think we can put some big ticks to say we are right at the time of the end, don't you? Right, how are we doing? It's not very good time-wise, is it? Are you okay for another few minutes, or have you had enough? Are you sure, just for a few minutes? Okay, we may as well do the end of the world while we're out (laughs) it. Right, the phrase the end of the world doesn't occur anywhere in the Old Testament, but it does occur in the New Testament... And we're going to go and join the disciples on the Mount of Olives and listen in to what they're saying to Jesus in AD 33. So we're going all the way back to AD 33 and here we are, look. This is us, we're there as well. There's Jesus, they're stood on the Mount of Olives, there's his disciples. We're stood right now, they're listening. There's the temple over there, they're looking at that, there's Jerusalem, this is exactly the scene. Imagine, we've gone there. And the wonder of it all is, we can hear what they're saying. How amazing is that? We can hear exactly what they're saying, because exactly what they're saying is recorded for us in the Bible. We know word for word what they said. And this is what we're listening into. Matthew 24 verse 2 says, Jesus said to his disciples... See ye not all these things, looking at this great temple that was in front of them? Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when shall these things be, when is the temple going to get uh, destroyed, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And some people have suggested to me that this isn't about the end of the world, it's about the end of the age, it's about the end of A.D. 70. And even if that is true, that isn't how Jesus answered it. Because Jesus did tell them about A.D. 70, but he answered their other question, which is about his coming and the end of the world as we know it. And here's what Jesus says, now don't tell me that this is nothing to do with what is about to come. This is everything to do with what is about to come. Matthew 24, verse 29. Immediately with the tribulation of those days, says Jesus, shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Not eighty, seventy. This is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember I said, the appearance of the sign of the Son of Man in heaven is the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. The sign of the Son of Man in heaven is exactly the same thing as Jesus coming in the clouds of heaven. And that is what we're going to see when we look up. But Jesus, in Luke 21, which is a parallel passage to this, says some stuff that's going to be happening in the world at this very same time. So in Luke 21 verse 25, it says there's going to be signs in the sun, moon and stars. Upon the earth there'll be distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear, that word in the Greek means terror, for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. But the powers of heaven will be shaken. And then these very people who witness the terror, who witness the fear on earth, they will see, including us, the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now do you not think these things are happening right now? Have we got signs in the sun, moon and stars? Well this is a clip, uh, audio coming up, uh, just of a few things that happened just a couple of months ago but we, we could spend all night looking at wondrous things that are happening in the earth, in the heavens. Tonight, across central Texas, many are asking, did you
2: see it? That fire in the sky that some say caused a sonic group bo-
0: amazing things happening in the natural heavens. But we also see great distress on Earth at the same time. And this is taken from CNN. This is its summary of 2015. I could have played 2016. It was even more graphic. But this is 2015 summary of the Earth.
1: Breaking news: Masked men
2: opened fire at the offices of a controversial newspaper in Paris. Two armed men entered the building and began opening fire.
1: There's been a hostage taking at a kosher deli. Meanwhile, those two brothers, suspected of the attack, are up and cornered. Terrorists who traumatized this region for three days are dead, but not before leaving 17 innocent lives ended. Major new offensive launched by ISIS. The US-led coalition is striking back. Are we winning right now? We're still building the forces. I'm confident we will win. The Russian passenger plane with 224 people on board crashes in Egypt. ISIS claimed it had brought down the plane. Vladimir Putin is vowing
2: to take revenge.
1: Devastating earthquake in Nepal.
2: This is the race against time. Brick by brick, the desperate dig to find survivors. A growing crisis overseas. Migrants trying to escape their war-torn homelands, attempting to get to Europe. President Obama is strongly defending that controversial deal to halt Iran's nuclear program. It is a good deal. You guys have been bamboozled, and the American people are going to pay for that. Bamboozled, outmaneuvered,
1: outnegotiated. Were you fleeced? <laughs> There's a lot of politics going on,
2: man. Breaking news, this comes out of France where a German wings passenger plane has crashed.
1: Disturbing new detail, the co-pilot intentionally crashed the plane into the mountains.
2: The terror group ISIS claims responsibility for unprecedented attacks in Paris in six separate but coordinated bombings and shootings.
1: The scene of the worst carnage at the Bataclan Theater.
0: Witnesses say they saw these shooters arrive inside and begin firing indiscriminately.
2: An international manhunt is now underway. Police carried out a deadly
1: raid. The suspected ringleader is in fact dead. The soul of the city is intact. They have heavy hearts, but they are not going to succumb to fear.
2: It seems another week, another tragic mass shooting.
1: Nine people killed in an unthinkable crime in Charleston, South Carolina. What does it say about us that in 2015 somebody walks into a church and then shoots them one by one?
0: This is the world that we're living in. And it's come ever, ever closer to home. Jesus said we'll live in a time of terror, in a time of fear. It's right on our doorsteps right now. And unfortunately... It's just going to keep getting worse. We know that. We do live in this time of terror. He also said that we'd see the sea and the waves roaring. You know, I was born in 1969. I don't remember seeing, you know, great tsunamis coming in like we've seen over the last few years. But suddenly, this is what we see. lots of ticks here. To me, we're on the brink of it. This is why I say, I feel, maybe you do as well, that the return of the Lord Jesus Christ is is imminent. And the very last thing I wanted to show you was this amazing timeline to do with Israel. Um, Israel began the process of creation in 1897 uh, with the Zionist movement that met for the first time in 1897. And 120 years later brings us to, to now. Uh, that's, that was honestly the beginning of the uh, creation of Israel as we now know it in modern times. In 1917, there was the Balfour Declaration uh, where Britain said, we back the Jews going back to uh, the land of uh, Israel, we support it. That's another major, major milestone on the creation of Israel. 100 years on brings us to 2017. In 1947, in the November, the UN voted that Israel should be created in the land of Israel. I know it was the following year, six months later, when Israel was finally uh, physically created, but it was in 1947 when the UN passed the vote for that to happen. 70 years have gone by, uh, brings us to today. In 1967, Israel took Jerusalem, and in the first time in 1,897 years... Israel had total sovereign control over Jerusalem just as Christ on Mount Olive on the Mount of Olives said that they would in 1977 for the first time Israel started peace talks with its surrounding neighbors and 40 years later brings us to 2017 and the wonder of it all is that 120 years and 100 years and 70 years and 50 years and 40 years are all super significant time periods in Uh, The Bible. And just to tell you what they are. It was God gave a 120 year countdown clock to Noah because we told in Genesis 6 verse 3 that the 120 years would be the time until uh, the flood actually came. And that was a countdown therefore to judgments when wickedness would be finally removed. The very first time a generation is mentioned is in Genesis 15 verses 13 and 16. And it is actually 100 years. And, uh, and we know that the Bible talks quite a bit about the generation uh, coming to an end. But actually, it was at that particular point, when that generation that came to an end, that Israel was finally uh, saved. That 70 years um, is mentioned in Jeremiah 29 verse 10. It was the, the time frame of Israel being in captivity and then after that being released. So it was a very significant time for Israel at the end of that uh, 70 year period. 70 years of course is the number of uh, the lifespan of a man. Uh, 50 years is a jubilee year. That's where we are right now in relation to 1967. 50 years has gone by since Israel took Jerusalem. And in the jubilee year all debts are forgiven. It's a new beginning and we're right there as we speak. And 40 years uh, is mentioned in Psalm 95 verse uh, 10 verse 10. And 40 in the Bible is always significant of a time of testing. And at the end of that 40-year period, the test is over. And so, look, I don't know, I'm not saying something 100% is going to happen in 2017. But surely, with the convergence of so many significant time periods coming at this time, plus we add in all the things that are happening at a rate of not and escalating... The labour pains are getting worse and worse. The contractions are getting closer and closer together. This earth as a woman will give birth and the Lord Jesus Christ will come. And surely uh, that then gives us this total sense of urgency that we need to do something about it now and to get ready to see Jesus. That's the message. Hopefully, um, you know, it's been of some help. My message is... Look, go and look at these things, go and test the things that we've looked at, Uh, switch off the TV, open the Bible. It's like reading a live news report at the moment. It's amazing and we should see it in that way.